You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining us on this new episode of the Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Today's topic, to build back better, does the U.S. and the president need a digital service corps? You know, when we think about this concept of a digital service corps, national service in general, philosopher William James first coined the concept of non-military service in the early 1900s. And it would take people like former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to pick up on this when he established the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s, working to restore the country's parks and build towards economic recovery and the rebuilding of roads, bridges, dams, among other things. And in creating this civilian conservation corps, we are killing two birds with one stone. We are clearly enhancing the value of our natural resources, and at the same time, we are relieving an appreciable amount of actual distress. Soon after FDR, we'd see the GI Bill and a variety of other national service programs from the retired and senior volunteer program to the Volunteers in Service to America, VISTA, AmeriCorps, Job Corps, and the National Teacher Service, all administered by the Corporation for National and Community Service in the federal government. Some of the issues that we faced then in the 1930s still surface today, and those issues Though they may not be around building roads and bridges as part of the New Deal, they're related to quelling COVID-19's demonstrative impacts on our communities. President Biden has already put out a need for a National Service Corps for mass vaccination. But I'm here to talk about the need for a Digital Service Corps to help us with this new down payment on broadband infrastructure. The new stimulus package in the relief fund actually provides for investments in infrastructure, workforce training, school reopening in terms of remote learning, as well as a slew of other digital access activities. But who will do this work? And I'm suggesting in my tech new deal that perhaps it's a public service opportunity. So today I'm joined by two experts who are going to talk about why we need to expand upon the existing national service programs and share a little bit of their expertise and what they've done to ensure that America not only gets back to work, but puts in the work to build back our communities. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest for today, Amanda Renteria, President and CEO, Code for America and former National Political Director for the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, and Nick Sinai. Venture capitalist, adjunct Harvard faculty, and former deputy chief technology officer of the White House under the Obama administration. Nick is also the co-founder of the Day One Project, which I hope he'll talk a little bit more about today. Thank you to the both of you for joining us on this Tech Tank podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So I want to start the conversation around framing the national, you know, the the meaning behind national service. So I know I gave a lengthy (laughs) introduction, but it's just so fascinating how we've gotten here in 2021 with really prioritizing what service means in the United States and how it's really been a gap stop, right, for so many concerning issues that we've had, as well as filling the blind spots that we may not see. So Nick, let me start with you. What has history shown us about the need for national service? Let's talk about that overall. And then, Amanda, I want you to jump in because I think it's important for our listeners to understand why national service is as imperative as some of the other public policy initiatives that we currently explore. 
Well, I'll give it a shot. You know, throughout the history of of this nation, there there have been these these opportunities and these needs for for everyone to kind of scrub in and 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 help, whether it's at a local level in your community or or in state or, or federal government. And we, we see that periodically that there's there's that great interest in in serving the country. And you see that in in uniform service in defense of our country, but you also see it on the technology side where where I spend my time. And and we see the interest in 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 helping improve government. And so just as one example, I had the the, the great honor of helping start and run the Presidential Innovations Fellow. Uh, a new program that President Obama started to bring technologists and entrepreneurs into government. And uh, a lot of it was actually modeled or, or inspired by, by Code for America, actually. So I'm honored to have Amanda here as well. And the idea was that, look, if, if fundamentally great lawyers can, can clerk for Supreme Court and federal judges, why can't we have great technologists come and do a tour of duty and help fix government? And there's so many opportunities. And, and so we started and ran, ran that particular program. But you see that during, during uh, this pandemic, too. So a number of Obama alums and some others started uh, the U.S. digital response. And so that is basically a volunteer effort that, that started when a number of people saw the opportunity to to help a state and local government specifically around you know how do we how do we kind of cope with the with the pandemic and you know they've gotten thousands and thousands of volunteers to scrub in and help state and local government provide the kind of information and services, whether it whether it's around closing and reopening, whether it's around vaccine distribution, software and, and, and digital services is increasingly core to government service delivery. And and there's a lot of great untapped uh, talent in the in the tech sector that wants to scrub in. And so I'm excited to see in this in this time of need, especially in this past year. That we've seen the 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 tech community uh, scrub in. Yeah, Mando, you want to jump in on that or on this level setting? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Number one is just this idea that in this country, you know, devoting your time, volunteer time, or really work time to your country, and making sure that the skills that you have really do speak to what's happening in our government and really allow um, that to influence the direction of our country. And I think right now what we've learned in this pandemic is tech skills are a needed force within government, whether you're talking at the federal level and trying to make sure agencies are coordinated or whether you're talking at the hyper-local level where on the ground is where people really understand what's happening, particularly in a crisis. And we've seen it over and over again. This time it was mutual aid. It was vaccination help that we saw in like the state of Massachusetts for Code for Boston. Really that kind of work and that kind of responsibility that people have to the government. It's a way to really connect with and understand our government and shape it as well. The second piece is, as we evolve as a country, there are new voices out there. There are new talents and new skills, and we'll have many more as we move forward in, you know, in history. And one way to really exercise that connection is through these civic core, usually focused on younger or new talent, bringing it into government. And you're seeing that with new equity voices, new racial justice issues that are surfacing are because younger folks are saying, hey, we want government to look and act differently. And that is equally important for government to be able to make that connection. And one really simple way to do that is through these national service organizations where you're able to bring in that talent, that voice, and really shape this country in a direction that it is moving to reach all people. 
You know, it's so interesting as I'm listening to you speak, because unequivocally, this should be something that's supported across the aisles, right? But we have seen, as I've shared in my intro, that national service in this country has been led in large part by whoever is in uh, power. Before I jump into, you know, what your particular organizations are up to, why is it so important to have congressional buy-in around these topics that we're talking about today? Well, I think it gives a a much broader sense of support, right? When you have bipartisan uh, buy-in, it, it really does create that 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 level of support that it, it is a, a national project, and this should be a, a bipartisan topic. And in fact, I, I'm I'm pleased to say that there there are supporters on both sides of the aisle who are passionate about public service in in from the technology perspective. So back to the Presidential Innovation Fellows, that was actually supported on a bipartisan basis and was codified. Yes, President Obama had started the program, but it was actually codified by bipartisan legislation. So it's it's nice to see that in in this idea of government modernization and how do, how do we make government more user-friendly, there are supporters on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, Amanda? Yeah, Nick's right. This is one of the places where uh, both parties come both parties come together, and these days that's hard to find. But having spent a decade on the Hill, it is important to engage leaders of both sides in Congress at the highest levels to say to people, "We want you involved, not just to vote for me, but we want you involved in shaping how government interacts with people on the ground." And um, I can't underscore the fact that when crises happen, when folks are hurting, it really is felt on the ground first. And that conversation should roll up. And this is one of the ways you do it. And from a congressional level, it's really important for them to say, I'm opening to listen, to engaging, to connecting. And fortunately, we're there now. Let's hope that continues into you know this Congress and going forward. Yeah, you know, I agree. There's something that we should all have agreement about, and that is people giving their time, right, in service and in national service for that matter, and finding this as a stepping stone to fill some of the gaps that we have in our workforce as well as in our communities. Amanda, tell us more about what you do and how you even came into this new role as the chief executive officer. Sure. Well, thank you. And thank you for following it, supporting it, Nick. All the great work that you did really elevated the work that Code for America has been doing for a long time. And really 10 years ago, civic tech was a new word. And Jen Palka, the co-founder or the founder of uh, uh, Code for America, really wanted to push this idea of how do we get tech talent into cities, governments, et cetera, right? And so it really started as a an effort to try and get tech talent in turned into a huge volunteer network across the country. Still remember National Civic Hacking Day in the White House with President Obama. And so it built this ecosystem of saying we need tech in government and this is a good relationship to have if we want to have the kind of government we can all be proud of. Since then, our networks are still very active, certainly very active during crisis moments where they step in and are able to add capacity to the local level. But we've also since dived, dug a little deeper into programs like food assistance into programs like tax benefits and cash assistance, into programs like automatic record clearance. These programs mainly focus on low-income communities and ensuring that government can actually deliver services to all people. And we leverage technology to do so. But frankly, most importantly, what we do is we leverage that technology in a way that centers the people that actually use those services. That's a really key point here. There is no app that is going to fix systemic racism there is no uh, tech that is going to make us all understand how we can make systems work. It's the hard work of really putting people together and saying, we are going to center the people that government serves 
and build the systems from that place. And we are really proud of, you know, being in a time and a moment where we have spent 10 years um, learning from communities how to reach them, particularly in their in their moments of need. And so it's great to be a part of the civic tech organization right now. And it's really important that we are all focused on leveraging our tech tools, our tech processes to reach real people with dignity and respect. Yeah, I love that. I mean, Nick, you also have a a tremendous career, I know, in doing this, as I think when we met, right, when you're over at the uh, White House. And you really innovated a lot of the White House programs when it came to bringing in talent into the federal government. Talk more about what you did. And I'm also curious about this new venture that uh, you told me about that I want to hear more of the Day One Project. Well, we were really inspired by Code for America. And in fact, at a certain point, we had recruited Jen Palka, the co-founder of Code for America, to come in and, and do a tour of duty herself as, as a deputy CTO. And she was instrumental in helping helping start the U.S. Digital Service. But so the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program was a initiative to, to bring mid-career technologists and entrepreneurs to come in and and work on problems that matter, paired with uh, really talented innovators inside of government. And we learned a lot from that program. And, and you know, that's that's scaled where we've now had over 200 people come in. And some have, have gotten inspired by public service and have stayed. And so the, the chief technology officer of the VA, for example, is a former presidential innovation fellow. Folks have also gone back into the entrepreneurial and tech and and you know other government service roles as well. And so it, it was it was great to to do that at, at a mid career level. And while we were we were growing the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, healthcare.gov happened. And healthcare.gov was was a you know essentially had had threatened the president's signature domestic policy initiative about expanding. Uh, access to healthcare uh, to millions and millions of Americans, and and so a, a small team was assembled from inside and outside of government to help diagnose what was wrong and ultimately fix healthcare.gov, which was a, a website where Americans could could buy private uh, insurance at discounted rates. And out of that was born the U.S. Digital Service, which was a uh, a tech group including some presidential innovation fellows who, who then joined it, to help focus on those services that, that millions of Americans depend upon. And so just as one, one small example, the, it's not small in any sense, but as one example, the, the VA serves over 20 million veterans and, and delivers health care to, to 9 million veterans. And, and the, there were hundreds and hundreds of websites and hundreds and hundreds of, of phone numbers for veterans to call. And, and that really wasn't meeting veterans where, where they are. And so one of the things that the U.S. Digital Service did was work to consolidate it to a, a one place where veterans could, could ask for information, could get benefits and, and health care, and, and sign up for the services that they have deserved. So it's, it's really exciting to see that, that level of focus on the end user. So building on what Amanda was saying is in the case of the VA is is how do we how do we move from a VA centric organization to a veteran centric organization? And veterans, of course, are vastly diverse across age and 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 service and and ethnicity and and so many di- different dimensions. But how, how do you really build 
a, a set of digital services that meet veterans where they are. If you fast forward a little bit, I've, I've been teaching at the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard College. I know you've been busy, busy, Nick. Huh? Yeah, I've been busy. So I've, I've been teaching this tech and innovation class. And I, I had a, a few students who said, you know, we've been super inspired by the, the people that have come and guest lectured, you know, who have been from the, the U.S. federal government. And, you know, we did our last summer at Uber Engineering or some, some tech company. And yet we want to serve in the federal government. And all we can find on USA Jobs, the, the website where people apply for jobs, is a SharePoint implementation. And so that's not a very exciting tech job for kind of cutting edge computer science students. And, and so they, they created this organization called Coding It Forward, a nonprofit to attract the next generation into internships at the, at the federal level. And they've been doing this for four years and, and they've placed over 200 students from from colleges and universities across the country into 11 different federal agencies and have shown that in just a 10-week period, the students are able to have real impact and work work on, on important problems and, and have, have had really positive experiences where they may not have thought that they would be going into public service, but now are excited about making government part of their career. And Building on all the success of, of Coding It Forward, one of those founders of that nonprofit, Coding It Forward, is starting up a, a new group called the Digital Core. And that's basically saying, look, there's just not enough of Generation Z in, in federal service. I think the statistic is it's around 6% uh, of, of the federal workforce is under 30. And if you look at the tech workforce, it's something like 3% of the tech federal workforce is, is under 30. And so we need the next generation to serve. And, and so Chris Kwong is this, this particular recent graduate. And so he and I co-authored this proposal to say, you know, what would it mean if, if the, the next generation, especially the computer scientists, the designers, the data scientists, the product managers, what would it mean if they were to, to come into to, to federal service to contribute for a, for a two-year term rather than a, a, a 10-week uh, summer internship? And yeah. so that's the proposal that we authored for the day one project, which is a uh, clearinghouse of, of uh, policy proposals. Yeah. And Amanda, I want to give you a chance to respond to this because, you know, Code for America, you're not a teenager, right? When you hear what Nick is talking about in terms of the groundswell of young people sort of pushing us back into the service mentality, you all have seen this, right? Because Jen was young when she started Code for America. <laughs> um, I'm not going to tell anybody on that podcast how old all of us are, but she was young, right? Like these students. So what are you seeing in terms of just where the energy is coming when it comes to service? Is it similar to Code for America or do you think we're on this new trend? No, I think I think we're at a different time. Certainly the pandemic has raised this idea that we need systems that work and we need to do things digitally. I think that has been surfacing for a long time at Code for America. We have seen it. We have seen the need. But then the pandemic really pushed that forward. Like, why can't we use digital services when it comes to government? But the other piece is that I think this generation has a new way of innovating government if they believe right, that government can be an innovation center. And I believe it can, and I believe we are actually in a moment, a window of opportunity where people are rethinking their entire lives. And that does include thinking about your job and how you're giving back and what your purpose is. All of those kinds of big questions that people have gone through over the last year, 
I think really do present an enormous opportunity in this administration, but really in government at large, everywhere someone lives. And that part to me is one of the most exciting pieces. And you are seeing the Biden-Harris administration uh, put investments in technology, put folks in agencies that have tech skills, and that can make a huge difference as we begin to think about our government in a new way, not just bringing back you know, the soul of the nation, but really bringing back the innovation of government. We know there are organizations like the NIH that really push forward medical research. Alternative energy during the Obama years really sparked, really sparked our alternative energy industry and solar panels, et cetera, that we all see now. And so the idea that we can be, that someone, our volunteers, our staff, people with tech skills can be the spark to innovation within government and really make a better government is actually a driving force that we see at Code for America. But I think that really the country is open to right now. Yeah, you know, I want to I want to stay on a point that you just made, right? Because I think one thing that technology has done is that it has gone so quickly that we can't keep up with innovation when you are in the government, right? Because the internet has sort of taken on its own pathway in life. If you think about the pandemic, as we all have sort of centered this conversation around, before the pandemic, we had a digital divide. Post the pandemic, we have a wider divide because we've realized that young children can't get online to complete homework. We're even finding, and and Nick brought up healthcare.gov, that we need the internet to schedule vaccination appointments, and there are many people who are not connected in any way or form. And we're finding that there are websites that still crash, right, in the government because they're not necessarily uh, ready to take on the type of demand. I want to shift our conversation to a couple of things. You know, one, what do we do when we have a shortage of people in these areas that can help innovate government services? Two, how do we see these opportunities of national service sort of transgressing some of the divides that we're currently experiencing? One of the things that's so interesting about FDR and the Civilian Conservation Corps is that he intentionally made sure that Black Americans were all part of the conversation. They were part of the core because he also knew their economic insecurities during the Great Depression were going to need a, bo- a bolstered approach to get them back into the workforce. So let's start with, you know, why is it that we just don't have enough people ready for these types of careers? And are we starting too late in the pipeline, you know, at the, Nick, at the you know, student level versus going in and getting them when they're much younger? Yeah, I, I think that the, the talent is there and it's, it's misleading to call it a pipeline problem. And I, you know, the data points I have are this, this nonprofit that I've been working with and advising, Coding It Forward. They, they have, every year, the cohort that they've placed in, in federal service has been majority female and has had strong representation from, from African-American and, and Latino communities. So it, it, I've seen the numbers and, and watched them actively recruit across a, a number of schools and, and, and actively focus on diversity and inclusion and belonging as they are, are recruiting. So, you know, we, we have over 300,000 STEM graduates and over 60,000 computer science graduates in this, in this country every year. We can absolutely recruit a talented and diverse set of folks to come in and serve at all levels to, to help improve government. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you spend any time in, in government innovation, uh, these things co- tend to come back to either a procurement challenge in the sense that we have a kind of overly complicated procurement system, or it's a talent challenge. 
And and the observation that I would provide the listeners is is that we simply don't have the next generation participating enough, at least at the at the federal level. And so I'm I'm excited on a diverse and inclusive basis to to encourage the next generation to serve. And I can tell you they want to serve. Like there's pent up demand from the from the the students that I know and 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 the networks that I'm a part of. I see they they want to serve. And so we have to find ways to make it to make it easier for them to do so. Yeah, and Amanda, I mean, for Code for America, right? There is this distinction between they want to serve it, they want to serve, or they want to work, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think what I've always been intrigued by Code for America is people have pretty much rolled up their sleeves because they want to do better. It goes back to that quote about you know the spiritual moral value of being able to provide service to your community. Talk to me about you know what your perspective is in terms of are we not getting people young enough, or are we not incentivizing people to come into government, and why do we have to turn to service to get people interested and involved? Yeah. So one of the just logistics and, and it's very simple, right? One of the logistics is just our, the way we classify government jobs was established long before tech was, was where it is today. And so when someone does actually go, I want to work for government, where can I work? When you look up the job cl- classifications, it doesn't quite fit you. When I was the COO at California's Department of Justice, and we were trying to bring in tech talent, we were trying to fit in what category can do this? How do we actually describe this so it fits in this way? And so there are a lot of systems within government that make it difficult to really bring in different skill sets. And so some of this work, government bureaucracies, agencies have to do themselves to say, how do we recategorize some of this stuff so that it is speaking to the people um, that we need right now in our agencies? But the other piece is, I do think we're at a different time. I do think you have a whole new generation who is looking to be part of government. But I will say, and your point earlier about this digital divide is real. I grew up in a very low income rural area. And it was just five years ago that the high school finally had everyone have access to um, technology. I mean, think about that. The ability to just get online just five years ago, that kind of digital divide. And I'm sure there are still certain areas of where I grew up that haven't, aren't able to access online while we're in remote school, a remote school situation. So now we've got to actually tackle those big divides. And the reason why it's so important is because those are the voices we also need in government. This idea that everyone's been talking about, which is lived experience, the lived experience of now getting to technology and what that means and how we can bridge that divide. We need more of those folks in government. We need to not only have the classifications read right when people apply, but we need to be proactive in reaching those folks and bringing them in. Because if not, these are communities that are going to be completely forgotten now that I believe as we come out of the pandemic, we are going to be in a new tech level. Listen, if you don't have internet, it is going to be more difficult. You're seeing companies adjust to this idea and almost assume that everybody has it, right? That everyone has access. And so we've really got to start thinking about not only bridging that divide, but bringing those folks in to government so that they can shape the kind of policies where we make sure no communities are forgotten. Yeah, you know, I think that's so interesting. So I'm going to date myself a little bit, right? Because I've had experience with the AmeriCorps program years ago when I was at Northwest University finishing my PhD. I was uh, working in what was then labeled community technology centers. And we had no staff. We were just basically a bunch of students trying to put this together. And we reached out to the AmeriCorps program, which I think was in the beginning stages of its development. And we received a Romanian gentleman who was a 
trying to get into the workforce, who came over, spoke no English. It was really adorable. I write about him actually in my forthcoming book on the digital divide, but he spoke no English, but he was able to connect with the students because he knew technology. In his country, he was a trained technologist who had just come here to the United States in the city of Chicago, as a matter of fact, but he was able to essentially connect with the kids and teach them, African-American kids in a public housing development, just what to do with tech. And I thought that was so fascinating because we needed the help and he needed to learn. He was incentivized though, right? He got a little small paycheck. I know future AmeriCorps volunteers or other folks that came through these programs were able to get student loan forgiveness and things like that. Before I get into the diversity question, I do want to ask both of you, do we need a better job with these incentives? Because it is one thing to look for work and it's another thing to take these years of service because you want to reduce your loan debt or you want to, you know, gain a little bit of experience by getting a, you know, a few extra dollars in your bank account. But how do we further incentivize this? I do think that there's an opportunity to pay public servants more at all levels of government. And I, and I think that we need to reform the civil service to, to make it even more competitive. But a lot of the, the reforms that I think are, are the most impactful will be around, you know, how do we have modern tools? How do we have a modern environment? How do we give people the the, the kinds of flexibility, including work from home and the the, the type of things that, that really let people balance their work and their life? Because I, it's one of those things where where a lot of people want to come in and serve for for their entire career. But many people want to come in for a few years, and and if we can reduce some of the frictions and make it possible for people to do that, the the mission and the impact that they can have is so great, and they're attracted by that. I mean, that's that's why people want to serve. You know, all the public servants that I've I've worked with are are so driven to to give back, and so you just have to m- mix that with the the you know, reducing some of the, the friction and, and paying people fairly. And I, and I think we will continue to get great talent uh, coming into government. Amanda? Yeah, I think we need to, I think he's right. I think, Nick, the idea of really looking at the full package of what we can give to young folks coming in. I remember some of these conversations when I was trying to recruit some young folks and I was like, but we have a great 401 or we have a great retirement, right? We, <laughs> the eyes are glazed over, right? I mean, yeah, no, they were like, that's, that's not what we want right now. Okay, we're, we're young. <laughs> so how are we making sure when you're thinking about who you're trying to recruit, how are we making sure that we're giving the kind of incentives, right? A, a new parent, right? And saying, listen, we work with you at government. We work to make sure that you can have that kind of life. But there's the other piece, which is on the government side, we've got to start thinking about what does it take to be innovative? We want the folks who are fired up to like move technology in a direction, right? And it does feel right now when you apply through the government process, it feel it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel exciting enough. It doesn't, you know, you don't get that sense that government's like, hey, if you're incredibly talented, come here, right? And I think that that can change with a new administration. That can change with where we are right now when people say, hey, we need you, you know, we need you to raise your hand, we need you to come in. And by the way, once you get here, we want to do some interesting stuff, not just the same old stuff. And I think all of that whole sort of culture and style can change and needs to change and will make a difference. One of the things that we've found quite really hits the target 
is ensuring that we're bringing folks in with lived experience at the local level. So we actually fund some fellowships across across the country where they're working on housing issues and they experienced housing issues when they were younger or who've um, worked with worked within the criminal justice system, experienced the criminal justice system, and now are working on reentry policies in the local government. I cannot tell you not only how effective that is in terms of someone coming into government and going up that learning curve, because they don't need to go up the learning curve of what it was like to experience it, right? So in essence, you're bringing people-centered experience right into the government. And then really what we do at Code for America is we help with the city to say, okay, how can now you use this experience, build the kind of tools that are really reaching folks? That to me has been one of the most just really incredible results that we have seen in terms of being able to change systems so that they really are addressing people. I would love it for the system itself just to do it automatically, right? We had we have automatic record clearance where instead of having to have a petition and a lawyer to help you get that record off of, you know, off your bat, you can do this automatically now. It should just be, you know, the cannabis law, marijuana law changed. It should be that anyone that had those kinds of convictions, it's gone, right? We know we can do this in, you know, consumer issues. We know we can do this with a bank and yet government services, we haven't been able to do that. And for me, that's really what justice is about. That's really what getting government right is about, is that you are automatically serving people in a way that speaks to them. That's right. Yeah. So at the infrastructure level, the Biden administration is going to be giving out several billions of dollars of, of broadband grants. And I think that's that's really important. I had the privilege of working on the national broadband plan at the beginning of the Obama administration. And and we we absolutely articulated the the digital divide and talked about the investment required to to bridge it. Unfortunately, we weren't able to to convince Congress to to make those kinds of investments. There is now a, an investment being made. It, it's it's never going to be enough, but I think it's it's going to be a, a substantial down payment on closing the digital d- divide from a infrastructure perspective. But what we also see is that it, it it is also an affordability crisis, right? So it's not just enough to have the infrastructure in the in the wireless towers and in the fiber. But you also ha- has got to be at a price point. Uh, that makes sense. And so that gets into kind of competition policy and whether cities and municipalities can can build alternative infrastructure. And do you do you have the right kind of pro-competition policies to to help keep broadband affordable? And then there's this 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 other piece of it of how do we make sure that that broadband is being used in, in a way that that facilitates education for everybody? And so to the point of you know, how do we how do we ensure that schools get a chance to to have affordable broadband, but also have the devices and then have the 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 application and the teacher training and all of those those pieces. I mean, my eight year old twin girls, they are fortunate enough to have laptops issued uh, Chromebooks issued from from their local public school district. And that's they're now back at school four days a week. And I'm glad that we have the safety protocols to to facilitate that in in Massachusetts but not not every school district is able to provide those those chromebooks or or has the the kind of investment in in teacher training and and the kinds of applications and so forth i'll tell you something funny one of my daughters came to me the other day and and said that she wanted to learn how to do things in 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 google slides and she's 
plays Roblox way too much, which is this multiplayer <laughs> game. And I'm trying to always get her off of the Roblox. And so for her to express interest in making Google Slides was a little bit bizarre, but I am excited about it. I just have to say, it's it's just one of those things that we've, we've got to put a lot of bandwidth towards these issues, as you've said. Amanda, I want to come back to you just real briefly on just responding to Nick's comments on, you know, being able to expand this out into the, the general universe so that we can get some stuff done that this administration has put on our plate. Yeah. You know, again, I think we're all changing our lives and there's a real opportunity to really push this forward. And I think it's really important for this administration that this is not a one-time thing, but that there is staying power in this change, both staying power in making sure our systems work and the feedback loops that are going to require to make it even better, but just also making sure that this gets embedded in how people think of government, about how people engage in what the Biden-Harris administration is trying to do out there. And I, I think we've all got to keep talking about it, which is why I'm so excited about this kind of podcast, is because these are the kinds of conversations, the kind of engagement that will keep this conversation going long after you know the first big infusion or the second big infusion, but really lead to adoption in all communities across the country. Yeah, you know, I just want to ask you, I mean, we have the ears of policymakers across the district, across the country and the world, honestly, who listen to this uh, podcast. What would be your charge to this administration in making sure the national service, particularly in the areas that we discussed, is prioritized? And and what do we need to do to make sure that there's just not going to be this back and forth with the corporation for national service who's charged with this? So I'd say two things. Number one, we are what we measure. So how is it that we are measuring civic tech engagement? How are we measuring measuring the outcomes of our systems and whether they're really reaching people where they are? The second thing I would say is technology is a wonderful thing, can be, and it will be involved in everything we do, but it could be involved in a way that just makes current systems worse. I often like to say, you know, we know systems build inequities. Technology can basically just come in and make those inequities worse, (laughs) use efficiency to widen those gaps, right? And I think we have a moment right now where we are embedding technology, digital services in a new way because we all have to. And unless we are intentional, we will find that a generation from now, those gaps are bigger. And so I hope that we are measuring really understanding and measuring how we're closing that gap, because now is a moment where we really can change the direction of those curves. Yeah, I so appreciate that. And I so appreciate this conversation you participating. Nick, I'm going to sort of give you the last words is just think about the questions that I just gave Amanda with regards to, you know, what would be our message to this new administration? And honestly, what's our message around just the necessity of maintaining the funding of the Corporation for National Service going forward? Well, I don't think I could say it better than Amanda just just said it. You know, technology is 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 not the solution. It may be a small part of it, but it, it fundamentally is is people, and that's why I'm passionate about the digital core and passionate about bringing the next generation into public service and especially into technology roles. But fundamentally, it is about meeting Americans where they are and including all Americans as we we build a more representative government at all levels. And and so you know, I'm. Excited to see that one of the four tenets that this administration has said is their priority is around racial equity and inclusion. So I, I'm just just thrilled that this government realizes, this administration also recognizes that there can be a gap sometimes between policy and implementation. 
And and so back to what Amanda was saying is we have to actually focus on outcomes and what's actually happening. Because too often in 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 DC, we can have these policy conversations, but the 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 gap in terms of what Americans are actually feeling is, can be very different. And so I'm excited that the, the the folks that this administration are hiring are acutely aware of that the difference between policy and 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 implementation and 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 investing in in people to fix that. So I I can. I could be more pleased about the opportunity, but recognizing that it's, it's, it's hard work and it's going to take all of us. I want to thank Amanda and Nick for their participation on our podcast today. That was a really interesting conversation around just the necessity of public service and what we need to do to ensure that public service actually helps us to innovate federal government as well as state government, which I guess with more time we would have got more into. With that being the case, we know we have some historical frameworks and it's time for us to really think about how we center technology, which is at the focus of my article on the Tech New Deal. As I mentioned, this is the first of three podcasts that we're going to be talking about this Tech New Deal. We're trying to get the word out there that we have something that we can work with now that we have, as Nick said, a down payment on broadband in America. Please join us again as Tech Tank, which is part of the Center for Technology Innovation, continues to explore these very challenging policy issues with real people. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.